So I specifically asked if Seth would lead the choir in that song before this message. By the way, there's always a good time to sing, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Doesn't have to just be around Christmas time. In fact, everything that we're talking about on Wednesday of the Passion Week is describing the fact that the King is coming back. And today, we're going to get into a section where it's talking about the bride being ready for the bridegroom. And that's the specific reason I wanted that song before this message. So if you've been a part of the series so far, you know that we are going through a series entitled The Week That Changed the World. And it is focused on the final week of the life of Christ just before his resurrection, also referred to as the Passion Week. And we are studying each of the different days leading through this particular week. And last week, we were studying the first part of what occurred on Wednesday, which would have been the 12th of Nisan in the Hebrew calendar. And so I want to go back, kind of share maybe two minutes about what we covered last week, and then we'll continue forward from there. So last week, we found that earlier in the day, on Wednesday of the Passion Week, that Jesus taught his disciples to have faith in God when they saw this fig tree that was withered from the roots up. It was withered because Jesus had cursed it the day before. So as Jesus and the 12 arrive at the temple in order to teach, there's two major exchanges that happen. The religious crowd tested Jesus, and then right after that, Jesus challenged the religious crowd. After spending much of his day in the temple teaching, we find that Jesus goes over to the Mount of Olives. And as he's walking to the Mount of Olives, one of his disciples, it doesn't tell us which one, kind of mentions the beauty of the stones and the, the beauty of the buildings that comprise the temple. And Jesus' response was, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. The disciples asked him privately, they know this is a future event, so they asked him privately when these things would happen, what would be the signs of his coming and also of the end of the age. And Jesus answered their questions through a message that's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. In that message, he shared six signs that will signal his return and also three parables that warn people, be prepared for his arrival. Now, last Sunday, we covered the first three of those signs, and I reminded people of a statement that Jesus gave at the very beginning. He said, these things are merely the beginning of the labor pains. Just as much as a woman going through labor, it gets more intense. The, the contractions happen more frequently as it gets closer to delivery. He's saying that these events, these signs will happen with greater frequency and greater intensity just before he returns. So the theme of Wednesday is the king is coming back. And we got the first three signs of that. Here they are. They're in your notes. Once again, false Christ will mislead the masses. Number two, there will be worldwide conflict and increasing natural disasters. And then number three, the church will suffer persecution and the effects of apostasy. So those are the three that we covered last week. We are gonna have a word of prayer. Also, if you're not already there and you're following along with the references off to the side, you will see that we are currently right now in Matthew 24. So if you've not already turned there, turn to Matthew 24. I'm gonna have a word of prayer and we will immediately pick up our fourth sign from there. 
Heavenly Father, we ask right now that your spirit would guide us through, Lord, this section, these verses, this portion of your word. We pray today against any distraction that would keep us away from being able to clearly hear from you and to see what your word has to say about being prepared. God, may there not be a single person who walks out of this room today who is not prepared. May those who are watching online, may there be an urgency that they are prepared. God, may we see the intensity of this message and not push it aside for some future date. But Lord, may we reckon with these truths today so that we are prepared. In Jesus' name, amen. So here is the fourth sign that will signal Jesus' return and the end of the age. That is, the love of people will decrease and lawlessness among people will increase. Now, those two pieces go hand in hand together. When people love and respect each other, they don't kill each other, they don't rob each other, they don't mistreat each other. Lovelessness and lawlessness go hand in hand. Not only will there be end time lawlessness that disregards human laws, but there's also going to be end time lawlessness towards God's law. What I mean by that is in the past, there was more people who would have maybe what you would call a reverential fear or they would stand in awe of who God is. But now in our culture, you can see it in the headlines, now many people feel like God or the idea of God is a major part of the problem in this world. So when people move away from absolute truth to my truth, when the idea of God controlling everything is replaced with this notion that we are somehow in control, when respect for others gives way to disregard for human life, lawlessness will be aggressive and it'll also be unabashed. The Apostle Paul gave us a more detailed description of what this, this is going to look like. He shares this over in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Listen to how he describes the end of the days. He says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Each part of that description has been around at varying degrees all the way back into the garden. But what you're gonna find is the issue is not the newness of what is described, but rather the growth in frequency and intensity. As a practical exercise in end time awareness, I would challenge you to take that exact text and a newspaper of your choosing and begin to look at the headlines compared to what Jesus said or what Paul said is gonna happen prior to Jesus's return you will find that the two of those are identical. We see increasing trends in kids killing their parents, increasing trends in parents abusing and killing their own children. 
We're inundated with stories of unhappy people shooting into crowds of innocent people before they turn the gun on themselves. The business section of our newspapers are filled with articles of selfishness as well as greed that is ruining companies as well as hurting families. We see that self-love and lewdness are destroying cities. Anti-God, anti-Christian rhetoric abounds. And each time you hear another story, another headline, let there be this signal that's coming into your mind every time. The king is coming back. The king is coming back. He said very clearly that this is the beginning of the labor pains. When it increases in frequency and intensity, let it be a sign the king is coming back. So that brings us to our fifth sign. The gospel will be preached to the whole world. Matthew 24, 14. According to the Joshua Project, as of this last week, February the 20th, 2024, There are 17,311 people groups in this world. That includes everyone from the tribes in Africa to the inhabitants of the frozen tundra of the Arctic Circle to the people who live right across the street from you. Of the 17,311 people groups in this world, listen, 7,276 of these groups, 42% are considered unreached people groups. That means there is either no Christian influence that has ever been detected, or there is such a small Christian influence that it is almost undetectable. But here's what Jesus says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. There's two concepts of this fifth sign that stand out to me. The first is the gospel of the kingdom. The second is the grace of God. By the way, it's the gospel of the kingdom that will be preached to all the nations of the earth. Not the social gospel, not the prosperity gospel, not the gospel version that maybe Baptists like more, that Methodists adhere to, or that non-denoms prefer. It's not those things. It is the gospel of the kingdom. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So think about the context. He's describing these tribulations. He's describing these end-time events. And he says the gospel will be preached to the nations. Think about the context of that. Yes, our world has problems. Yes, there are false Christs that are deceiving millions. Yes, there is warfare. There's natural disasters that are increasing. There is persecution among the saints. There is a defection from within the church. Lovelessness and lawlessness abound. Creation itself reels under the weight of rebellion. But God's answer to the crisis of this world is not more laws, it's not more money, It's not more education. It's not more government. His answer to the crisis of the world at that time is the gospel of the kingdom. It says the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached among the nations like a freight train of redemption. The gospel is not going to be stopped. Governments might not like it, but they cannot contain it. 
Academia may mock it, but they cannot stop it. It's going to still come through. The church of Jesus Christ might get derailed, might be focused on other things. Some churches might not focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ at all, but there will be a remnant that is out there that is continuing to take the gospel to the nations. He says, it shall be preached. Do do you notice the certainty of his words? Not, I'm hoping it will be. Not if my church gets it together. No, it shall be preached. It shall be preached. Also notice the grace of God in this. When all of these other events have happened, after the gospel is preached to the whole world, then the end will come. God graciously holds back his arrival, holds back some of his judgment holds back part of his wrath until the gospel reaches the ends of the earth. That's grace. We don't deserve him holding anything back for us. We couldn't demand it if we wanted to. The very fact that he chooses to do it is a testimony to the grace of God. Every time you hear me mention the gospel in a service, Every time you hear the gospel proclaimed among the nation, every time you hear a child share the gospel with a friend or a friend share the gospel with a neighbor, every time you hear of another people group that is being engaged, let it be a signal going off in your mind, the king is coming back. We're this much closer to the king who is coming back. The king is coming back over and over again. He wants you to know he's coming back, and here's how you know he's coming. So then we get to number six. Great tribulation will surround Christ's return. I have written this final sign as generally and also as generically as I could possibly make it. The word tribulation means great difficulty, affliction, or distress. Every visual picture that Jesus provides in this section of this particular sign is either distress on a personal level, difficulty on a human level, or problems on a global level. Jesus warns once again in this section of the horrors of being pregnant in those last days. He speaks of the abominations that are happening within the temple. He warns of great tribulation like the world has never known. He reiterates the fact that false prophets are arising and misleading the masses. He talks about the sun going dark and the stars falling from the sky. Creation is reeling under rebellion. But remember, this is not the first time we've seen that type of chaos. When we began this series, I shared the first five chapters of the redemptive story of God. And if you'll remember, chapter one, God creates everything. Chapter two, humanity sins and messes it up. And then we rolled into chapter three, which is the effect of sin is felt. In that section, we talked about the fact that Adam and Eve's disobedience, they had a ripple effect on everyone and everything. Pain is increased in childbirth. The ground became cursed. The world is introduced to sickness, pride, war, idolatry, deception, disputes, and all of those other things. And all of that has been increasing in frequency and intensity since the third chapter. 
It continues to increase to the point of Jesus' arrival, to the point that he has one word that he's using to describe it, tribulation. How do you describe what's coming is tribulation. Here's a warning for the church. If we're not careful, we can get so caught up in trying to understand the types of problems and to dissect every one of the prophecies that we miss the point he's making. The point is, he's coming back and you need to be prepared. In fact, he says, Matthew 24, 42, be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. All of the signs should signal this thought in our mind. I need to be prepared. I need to be prepared. I need to be prepared because the king is coming back. You don't have to understand everything about every sign to be prepared. Listen to the way Spurgeon answered this. He said, a man says to me, can you explain the seven trumpets of Revelation? I said, no, but I can blow one in your ear and warn you to escape from the wrath to come. End of quote. I love it. He's like, I can't tell you everything that's going to happen, but I don't have to understand everything to tell you to be prepared. I don't have to know all the details of Daniel's prophecy to be prepared. I don't have to be able to fully identify the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15, in order to be prepared. I do not have to remember every prophecy. I don't have to chart out every event on a wall graph. I don't have to understand 2,000 years of church history to be prepared. So how do you know if you're prepared? That's what he gets into next. Don't you love how the fact he already answers where we're going? So here's the, how do we know that we are prepared? To do this, he's gonna share three parables. And in those three parables, he's gonna illustrate it with smaller stories to drive home the effect. So here's the first of the three parables. It's the parable of the fig tree. He draws attention to a fig tree, and he essentially says, you can learn a lot by looking at the seasons that come upon this tree. When the branch is tender, when the leaves start to come out, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these different events happening, when they increase in frequency as well as in intensity, you can know the end is coming near. My arrival is at hand. So what's the message that he wants us to walk away with with that parable? Read the signs and be prepared. Now I'm gonna start a statement in this. And this, this one particular statement is gonna be one that as I share the statement, I'm gonna keep writing it all the way through. I'm gonna start with this. I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs. That's the first part of this. So we're gonna go on from there and each of these different ones, we're gonna to add to that statement so that by the time it's done, you've got one sentence that helps you understand how you can be prepared. So he shares another story and the story now is that of Noah. With Noah's story, people were also warned that the end was coming near. And for 120 years, Noah went out and preached a message of repentance. 
For the people who heeded the message, there was time to respond and to get right with God before the destruction came. For those who did not heed the message, they were not prepared when the destruction came. So the, the story tells us that the rains began to fall and while the rains fell, people were still eating and they were drinking and they were carrying on with life as normal. And then Jesus finishes the story by saying, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Let that sink in. They did not understand until the floods came. They didn't wake up until it was too late. They, they didn't see the urgency of the message until the ark of safety was already shut. And Jesus is saying, do not be like the people of Noah's day. Be prepared now. And by the way, the message of Noah's day is the same message of our day. It was repent then. It is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance is at the heart of the gospel message. Repentance is an intentional turning away from sin that paves the way for intimacy and relationship. So now Jesus moves to another illustration of this. He moved away from a description of the whole world that is Noah's story to a description of individuals who are now unprepared. He talks about the fact that there are two men who are in a field. One is taken and another one is left. There's two women who are grinding at the mill and one is taken and the other one is left. It's a story of how some people have just gone on with life and they're not prepared still. They, they see, but they just don't care. They hear, but they choose to ignore what they hear. When Jesus comes, those who are not prepared are left behind. That's what he's describing. One's taken and another one is left. Here's the message. Recognize the signs and repent today. Today. Don't keep waiting. Today. Repent. So now we can add to that statement, I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs, repenting of my sins. So now he further illustrates this idea with comparing a thief coming in the night. And in the story he says, there's a homeowner who doesn't know that there's a thief coming. And if the owner knew that a thief was coming, the owner would be prepared when the thief arrived. And he's basically saying, just as much as the owner doesn't know when the thief is going to come, you don't know when I'm going to come. So what are you supposed to do? You are to remain alert. And as you remain alert, you are prepared. So now let's add that to our phrase. I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs, repenting of my sins, remaining alert. And then he goes on and he illustrates it further. He spoke of a faithful slave who was put in charge of his master's affairs all the way down to the master's own household. This was a slave that was greatly trusted. He was put in charge of everything, including the very family of the master. 
So in the story, if the master comes back and finds that the slave was diligently working, the master is going to be pleased, the slave is going to be blessed. But if the master comes back unexpectedly and finds that the slave is mistreating others, that he is doing his own thing, that he is failing to perform the responsibilities that were given to him, he's going to be punished. The challenge of that part of the story is be faithful with the task that the master has given you. That's for all of us. We are to be about the father's business. We are to be focused on what he's called us to do until the master returns. So now let's add to our statement. I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs, repenting of my sins, remaining alert, and being faithful to the task given to me. So now he's going to switch to another parable, but he still has the same theme of being prepared. This is the parable that I wanted that last worship song to point back to. It's the parable of the 10 virgins. This is found chapter 25 of the book of Matthew, verses 1 through 13. Jesus describes a Jewish wedding ceremony that would have three different components. There was an engagement period, there was betrothal, and then there was finally consummation. The engagement part was primarily between the fathers of the bride and the groom, very much like what we would consider an arranged marriage to be. Betrothal included the bride and the groom exchanging vows before family and friends. At this point, they were considered to be legally married and could only separate by death or by divorce. This was to last until the groom could establish himself in a trade or establish himself in some type of a career. Once he was able, listen to this, to provide a place for the bride to stay and provision for their life together, it was at the end of that that the betrothal period would come to an end. It's at that point of the betrothal period that the wedding feast would occur and the entire community would be brought together. The groom and his men would go to the bride's house where she as well as her friends would be waiting. And the whole wedding party would then parade through the streets proclaiming that the wedding feast is ready to begin. This procession often happened at night and they would take their candles, they would take their little lamps and they would go through the streets to light the way. At the end of the festival, you would find that the groom would then take the hand of the bride, put it in the hand of the groom, and the couple would begin their new life together. At that point, the consummation start time would then begin. The couple went to their new house to begin their new lives together. It's that final section that he's describing in this parable. He describes 10 virgins who are waiting for the groom and his attendants to show up. Five were foolish. Five were prudent. The five foolish girls had a lamp but no oil. The five prudent girls had a lamp with oil in it. But the issue was the groom seemed late. They kept waiting and waiting and waiting and the groom has it shown back up. So the wedding party goes to sleep but then in the middle of the night when nobody expects it, all of a sudden somebody yells, the groom is here. And they all jump up and they trim their lamps. What the idea is, is they would cut off the old part of the rag so that the oil could now come to the top. 
But when they start to trim the lamps, they find the five foolish virgins realize there's no oil in my lamp. So they look at the five prudent virgins and they say, give me some of yours. And they say, we can't, there's not enough. So the five foolish ones run off to the market to get oil for their lamps. But by the time they come back, the wedding doors have been closed and they will not be reopened. And listen to what's said, Matthew 25, verse 12. The Lord of the house says, I do not know you. Are you seeing where we're going here? The lessons in this are powerful. If you are born again today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you have been bought with the blood of Jesus today, by the way, you entered a prearranged marriage with Christ made possible by the will of the Father. And we are in this part. Jesus says, no one can come to God unless the Father calls him, John 6, 44. So Christians are now betrothed to Jesus by repentance and faith. The moment you repent of your sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ, you enter covenant relationship with God. That relationship cannot be broken. But listen, just like the groom who goes to prepare a house for the bride, so Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Today, the church is still in what's referred to as the betrothal period. We got a promise from the bridegroom, I'm coming back for the bride. So what did he say? Be prepared. You don't know when I'm coming back, but be prepared. So Jesus tells us, be ready, stay alert, watch for the signs, because like a thief in the night, he's coming. Oh, but with this, there is a warning to those who sit inside churches. There's a warning that is here. There are many who sit with the bride, but are not prepared for the bridegroom to come. They think they're prepared because they know people in the wedding party. They think they're prepared because they know information about the groom. They think they're prepared because they're around the bride so often, but their lamp has no flame because their lamp has no oil. When they finally discovered the problem, they want the other attendants to take your oil and pour it into my lamp. But listen, there's only enough oil in that lamp for the one person. The implication here is powerful. My oil could not fill your lamp. I cannot save you. This church cannot save you. The Baptist denomination cannot save you. God alone has to be the one to do the work. None of us can pour our salvation into somebody else's lamp without the oil of God's spirit in us. There is no possibility of a flame. Oh, but remember, we're still in the betrothal period, so I got good news for you. Here's the news. While the oil of God's spirit is non-transferable between believers, it is obtainable through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Today, we are still in this day of grace. Now is still the time for salvation. There's still time to be prepared. There's still time to repent of your sin by placing faith in Christ. Now is that time. Every single person needs an individual encounter with the bridegroom. Mine is not going to be enough for you. And yet there are people who are in the church right now 
that if you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? Their response is, well, my grandmother was a part of the church for a long time. Or their response is, I've tried to be a good person all my life. Or their response is, I try to, to go to church as much as possible. You can go to church every day of your life through the end of your life, but if you don't know the bridegroom, you are not prepared for his coming. So now let's add to our statement. I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs, repenting of my sins, remaining alert, being faithful to the task given to me, and making sure my lamp is filled by God. It has to be him. Here's the last of these parables. It's the parable of the talents. This parable is familiar to many. Jesus tells a story of a man who's going on a journey, and he gives different talents to different slaves based upon their ability. He gave five talents to one. He gave two talents to one. He gave one talent to another. Each one was to steward that talent and be prepared for the master's return. So now the master comes back. The slave with five talents, he traded with them, and he brought back five more. The slave with two talents, he worked with those, and he gained two more. The slave with one talent, he dug a hole. He buried the talent, and he gained nothing on it. So when the master returns, he now comes to settle accounts with each of those different servants. The first guy comes back, and he gives back the five talents plus five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. The second guy brought two talents back, and he had gained two more. And again, the exact same response, well done, good and faithful servant. The final guy, he brought back the one talent that was given to him. And then he makes this excuse. He says, I know that the master's a hard man. I, I was afraid of losing it. So instead, I dug a hole and I hid what was given to me. Did you notice the three pieces of his reply? He did not know the master. So he did not trust the master. So he did not obey the master. The master confronts him in this excuse and he takes the one talent that had been given to that guy and he gives it to the guy who had 10. The point of the story, you steward what you have and more will be given. Squander what you have and the little that remains will be taken. God has implanted gifts and talents in every single believer. And one of the ways we prepare for our master to return is to faithfully steward what he has entrusted to us. Amen. The master's reply to the first two faithful servants was, well done, good and faithful servant. Did you notice it was the exact same reply whether they, the guy brought back five additional pieces or brought back two additional pieces? It was the same reply. And both of those, they stewarded well. But then you got the guy who comes and he just hands back the one. He is not only unfaithful, he's also unwise. So now let's add to our big statement. 
I can be prepared for Jesus' return by reading the signs, repenting of my sins, remaining alert, being faithful in the task given to me, making sure my lamp is filled by God and my talents are being used for the king. Those who are prepared have nothing to fear with the king's return. Those who are not prepared, now is the time to prepare. He gives every warning. You are in this room today, not by accident, you are here by design. If you are hearing what I'm saying, this is a warning from God's word directly to where you are today. If there's breath in your body, now is the time to address these issues. Don't wait, don't put it off. So as the events of Wednesday are now coming to an end, we will be two days from Passover based on Matthew 26 two. Jesus would now return to Bethany for the night. The chief priest and the elders are gathered together at the high priest court, who's Caiaphas, and they're secretly planning their ways to take his life. As they plan his death, it tells us that Jesus arrived at the home of Simon, who was a former leper. Another woman, doesn't say who, walks into the room, opens up an alabaster box, and takes the perfume and pours it on his head. Mark chapter 14, one through eight. Four days ago, if you'll remember, Mary poured perfume on his feet. This lady pours perfume on his head. From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, he's being prepared for his death. While she is honoring him through worship is the moment that Judas walks out of the house to betray Jesus. Judas asked the religious leaders, Matthew 26, 14 through 16, what are you willing to give me to betray him? Let me pause there. There is an ebb and a flow to the Christian life. There are times of honor, like what the woman was doing, pouring this incredible ointment on his head. And there's times of dishonor, where one of his own disciples is about to betray him. Both of those events are happening simultaneously. One honor, the other is dishonor. There's times of fasting and there's times of feasting. There's times of refreshing, there's times of sorrow. There's an ebb and a flow to the Christian life. As this day began, Wednesday, as the day began, it started with a dead fig tree and a saying from Jesus, have faith in God. As the day ends, it would be with the scent of perfume in the air. And Judas saying, what are you willing to give me to betray him? You could not find two more opposite ends of the spectrum. The religious crowd offers 30 pieces of silver. He accepts the offer. So now it says that he's looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Each day of the Passion Week has now added a new dimension to the story. Palm Sunday, worship is happening. Going into Monday, the lamb is selected. On Tuesday, the kingdom of God 
is at hand. And on Wednesday, it took us two Sundays to get through it. On Wednesday, it's the reminder, the king is coming back. Now is the time to be prepared. Don't wait. Don't put it off. If there's been a a part in your mind where you're saying, I need to get right with God, if that has happened today, let today be the day. If there's a part of your obedience that God keeps prompting you on and you keep saying, I'll get to it when I can get to it, let today be the day you bring your obedience up to date. If there's something that he's saying, you need to repent of this sin in your life. Do not walk out of this room holding on to that sin. This is the way we prepare for the king who is coming back. We take his words seriously so that we are prepared upon his return. So we're going to have old school invitation here. There's going to be a song that is sung. The altar is going to be open. And I beg you today, wherever you might be in your spiritual journey, If the Spirit of God is prompting you, address that today. Do not wait. The King is coming back. So if you would, bow your heads for just a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Some of our pastors are going to be coming to the front. Our band and our musicians will be taking a place. We are going to go through this gospel message one more time. Well, you need to hear it one more time. The gospel is the good news of God's design, sin's intrusion and Christ's solution for human flourishing. The gospel tells us we've been created for a relationship with God. Our sins separated us from that relationship. And Jesus did what was necessary to reconcile the relationship. You and I cannot do it ourselves. All the events of the Passion Week are leading up, sharing this story, this beautiful story of redemption, that we are to be ready He's given us an opportunity to respond. If the Spirit of God is prompting you, if he's saying, he's talking to you, this is for you, now is that time, do not turn away the prompting of the Spirit of God. I'm gonna have a word of prayer. We're gonna open up the altar. If God is leading you to respond, I encourage you, respond to him. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask today that our hearts, our minds, our focus would be so clearly upon you. God, help us to see what we need to see. May we not walk away with delayed obedience. May we not walk away pushing forward the day of salvation, anticipating that there's gonna be another time. God, we don't know that. So Lord, may we respond as your spirit leads. In Jesus' name, amen.